Two for Fox 8. My name is Pete Selby, and alongside me over the airwaves from Leighton Buzzard all the way up to somewhere near Sheffield, Rob Hayes. Yeah, isn't it weird that we do a Leicester podcast and neither of us live there anymore? It's been like that for a while. Um, although I did notice Radio Leicester, um, is AD Damon tweeting out the uh, the perfect Leicester pancake? Did you see that? I didn't. Oh, okay then. So, what ingredients were on the Leicester pancake? Is this a test? Because if it's a test, I'm going to fail miserably. I've no idea. My pancakes have always got Nutella on them. Oh, you're you're a, a Nutella fan. Uh, we had uh, lemon, we had sugar, we had jam, uh, and that was it. But we had we had plenty of them, as you would imagine. Um, go on in. What the Leicester pancake? What was on the the Leicester pancake? Is it anything to do with Leicester? Uh, well, yeah, because that's the... <laughs> of course it does. No, it, no, it's no, it's got really. You know, Sicilian pizza on it. Of course, of course it does. What, what, I don't even know what we can here. grow in Leicester. Okay, it has a wa- bits of slices of Walker's pork pie. Right. Because it's from Leicester. Like Melbourne. Red Leicester cheese. It doesn't have Red Leicester cheese. Anything else? Walker's crisps. Yes! It had some, uh, some crushed up Walker's crisps. And it had a, a, a smattering of Stilton as well. Um... And uh, I think it had some chutney on as well. Actually, it looked really nice. It looked pretty good. But yeah, there you go. Uh, you failed miserably there, Rob. But um, I suppose the same as... I'm Le- not here to talk about food, Pete. I'm here to talk about football. I've got, I've got really hungry all of a sudden. Um, pork pie. <laughs> that's one thing I do. I've got to go get some Walker's pork pie because it's got to be Walker's. Anyway, um, football. That's what we're here for. And a, a disappointing result at Old Trafford. But maybe a promising display... At times, an awful lot of the time, a third of the time, probably, you'd say. Um, quite an extraordinary game, really, when you look at it objectively from a, from a neutral's point of view. But because we're not a neutral's point of view, um, it, was, it was a very, very strange game. Frustrating, uh, especially for, for Leicester, obviously, because... I mean, let's face it, we were awesome for the first half an hour and just couldn't put it in the onion bag, could we? It was... It was Leicester catching. I think United were a bit slow and a bit lackadaisical, but full credit to Leicester. They were sharp, incisive. They were everything that we kind of thought that they would be, really. But they just couldn't score. Hats off to the goalkeeper. Two really good saves. Um, Do you want to blame the two, really? I mean, the first was the shot by, uh, by Barnes. Should really have scored, but an excellent save, reaction save. And then the header from Inacho, I don't think Inacho could really have done more because he was standing. And he. I, I kept on seeing the replay thinking, could he have gone maybe a cross goal? Maybe not. Could he have put more power in it? Well, no, he put everything he had into it, made good contact, and it was right in the near post. So, yeah, one of those really, and, and, and two excellent saves. If we score those two, and Leicester really should have been 2-0 up, then it would have been a very, very different game. Of course, you let in 
arguably the most informed player in world football, in, in European football, Marcus Rashford, who who have always thought he's a decent player and, and you've heard me many a time lord his finishing. I think he's been an excellent finisher, even if he's off form. Give him a chance, he, he will score. And um, especially those goals like his first goal. We'll come on to the goalkeeping, but those kind of shots towards the bottom corner, one-on-ones, I think he's excellent. Um, and we've seen that against Leicester over the years, but the guy is just ridiculously in form. Um, and then, of course, the second half was disappointing, and there's there's a few other things as well. But just let's concentrate on that half an hour. Let, let's, let's go with the positives, because there might well be a little rant in a bit, but, <laughs> and you guess what that is. Leicester were really, really good, weren't they, for half an hour? Just couldn't score. Yeah, picked up exactly where they left off from the last couple of games, didn't they, with the... Uh... You know the the intent to grab hold of the game, press it, work hard, win the ball back high up the pitch, which has always been uh, our biggest success story under Brendan Rodgers. And you know, named um, the same starting lineup, so showed the faith with all of those players and said, "Look, go on, you're you're the ones getting the results at the minute. Crack on." Uh, and everything was pointing towards another positive result, really, because the performance was absolutely there, like you say. Uh, I completely agree with you with both of those first half chances. I think despite the the quality of the save from De Gea, I think Barnes has to score that. Um, and, and that's an area of his game that we continue to highlight as as one that he could push up to a, to a higher level. You know, if he increases his goal and assist return, then for me, he gets in the England squad. Uh, and he's one of the most effective wingers in the Premier League. It's that, it's that final element that's eludes him quite often uh, I totally agree with you as well on Ian Acho I don't think he can do any more with that it's uh, it's as good a header as it can be uh, and De Gea moves his feet incredibly well to get across to it um, you know proving that he is regardless of the mistakes he's got in him and, and the flaws in, in terms of reaction saves naturally he is one of the best goalkeepers in the Premier League uh, no doubt about that Um yeah, it was it was a pleasure to watch the first half an hour because you're looking at Manchester United, who are very very much in form. They've got a manager who rode a bit of uh, negativity that's been around the club essentially since Sir Alex Ferguson left. Uh, any man, new manager's got to get through that period. He's he's done that. He's got a system. He's got uh, pretty much a starting eleven, and, and they're continuing to churn out the results. And you know everybody few weeks ago was Man City Arsenal two horse race for the title Manchester United if they just keep quietly winning games and picking up points they're not a million miles away at all I'm not sitting here saying that they are full-on title contenders but they're right there oh I think they are Rob I I, I think I think they are really you look at you look at what the other two teams are doing and obviously we'll come on to one especially when we previewed the Arsenal game but surely United have to be bang there good defense and a guy banging in the goals well, yeah, like you said, one of the most informed strikers in Europe. I haven't seen the stats, but you, I know his stats over the last what ten games or so are are pretty special. So, yeah, you, you've they've got a lot of football still to play, and they are they're less spectacular, aren't they, than City and Arsenal? I think that's that's the thing about them. Um, I don't particularly think they played well uh, enough against Leicester. Well, they obviously played well enough to win, but I think we we handed quite a lot of the victory to them. Um, and I know Ten Hag wasn't pleased with their performance in in their previous league match, so 
he seems to be setting high standards, but you know, they, I think they are still beatable, and they were absolutely beatable on Sunday. It was simply a case of De Gea in form, Leicester squandering a couple of early chances, a couple of VAR decisions going the other way. I mean, I can't sit here and say that the entire result swings on any of those things because there were still 60 minutes of football in which we weren't very good uh, and we we sort of played into their hands, really. But um, I think Manchester United need one more gear to be serious title contenders but if you know City and Arsenal keep dropping points then maybe they don't need to be that maybe they they can sort of be this stoic kind of keep picking up points kind of team often it is them that that end up winning the title isn't it so in terms of the the Premier League 24 games gone they are absolutely in the hunt I don't know whether whether they will be in what 14 games time but we gave them a run for the money first half an hour didn't we we really did, and it's a. You're looking at these games, and you're looking at the new players fitting in very well, and it gives you hope for next season. The problem is you're four points above the relegation zone in 14th place, and because of wins for Southampton and and picking up points, the likes of Bournemouth as well, are outside of the relegation zone. It's it's very very close, so you can't count any chickens yet at Leicester at all whatsoever. So that's intriguing but also quite worrying as well at the same time we'll move away from uh, from that first half in fact no we, we, that, that first half an hour it, it was so good but I, I will just look at the, the the look for next season of course James Madison no Yuri Tielemans James Madison is the big question mark so if you take him out of there and replace him with a number 10 you'd imagine the front three will be there if they sign Tete um, better than he was against uh, in the home game against Tottenham. Um, just the odd pullback, etc. Didn't quite find the right man. It was just that kind of game, but still showed an awful lot, and it's, it adds an awful lot of balance to the side. Love the left hand side again. Christensen getting forward, um, maybe culpable at the back, but I, I can only surmise really because it was such a, a gaping hole that they ended up playing through for Rashford to score that. I think a lot of it was down to generally the frustration for not scoring and the confidence that was running through the side, the confidence that then moved into a being confident and playing with the ball to maybe being overconfident in searching for the goal that hadn't arrived, thus leaving gaps at the back. And Mendy, as much as he's scamping around the midfield, can't do it all and can't cover every gap at all. And Harry Suter looked a little bit silly in the middle, trying to jump on side. He was never going to reach the guy anyway, so it didn't really matter overall. But um, slightly, maybe a second or two, not ball washing, but not realising what position he is according to the rest of the back line, I suppose you could you could look at. Um, but then, then you look at the goalkeeper. Uh and we've said many a time, and I don't think anything's changed, and I think it will change. We need a new goalkeeper. It's pretty much, apart from replacing any first-team players who get sold, the number one thing to do. Uh, he runs, an, as much as Rasford will score past most goalkeepers um, in the Premier League in world football at the moment, I had zero confidence of Ward stopping them. And he, I'm not being, I'm not being funny, he looked quite dreadful. He looked very amateurish in theory, trying to stop those out of position. 
uh, off guard, late in reacting to the actual shot, even though it was crisp and firm in the, you know, in the corner. Um, for a number of the goals, actually, he was he was similarly like that. So, yeah, and one went straight through him, which it can happen to goalkeepers. But you know, come on, he, he should really have done better. Um, and then you look at the VAR decision. But before we come on to VAR, oh, in fact, actually, Rob, no, you you go ahead with with that submits a challenge and 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 Warden and obviously uh, Fass as well. You 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 go first. I think Fass is a little bit unfortunate in the way that he gives the ball away because he's he's stepping up towards the central third of the pitch, and if that ball comes to him for what what looked like a reasonably straightforward cushioned side foot volley then that's exactly the kind of thing you want your centre-back to be doing because in in days gone by, you'd have... Uh, let's let's look at, look at it from a point of view of, let's say, Wes Morgan and Robert Huth. I don't think either of those try that. And not that it's a particularly difficult skill, but it's it, it carried an element of risk, clearly, because it led to, to the United opener. But I think you probably see Morgan or Huth lift that side foot volley into a channel for somebody to chase. Um, and I'm not saying there's a right or wrong approach, but obviously from a Brendan Rodgers point of view, Waltfass has done exactly what his manager would have wanted him to do there or, or tried to do exactly what he would have wanted him to, in him to do. And, and that's ultimately the difference between Leicester and Manchester United on the day. The, the clinical nature of it, when United were presented with the ball, in the middle of the park, with an opportunity to counter on on Leicester City, they did it like bump, 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 goal. Uh, Suter is finding out very quickly that there is a huge difference between playing for Stoke and playing for Leicester. There's a huge difference between playing for Australia and playing for Leicester. The Premier League is much quicker than maybe even he realised. And... He's got no choice but to learn from it and get himself up to speed as quickly as possible because it's clear that Rogers rates him uh, more highly than than the likes of Amati soon to Vestergaard obviously because he came straight into the starting lineup. Um, he's got no choice but to get up to speed or or it'll be the chopping block for him in the summer and there'll be another centre back in his place. Simple as that. Uh, Danny Ward, oh my goodness. <sighs> Danny Ward, when that ball comes through, right, if he's in a better starting position, he's got probably more than a 50% chance of getting out to that ball, uh, either at the same time as or slightly before um, Rashford has, has got a chance to set himself to shoot, right? He isn't. Even when Rashford starts to take a touch and Ward is covering about 10% of his goal and stood still. You're looking at that going, right, Rashford's going clean through against any goalkeeper in the world. He's backing himself 95% of the time to score at the minute, the form he's in, probably even higher. He's looking at Danny Ward and he's going, I am 100% scoring this. There is absolutely no way I'm missing this. Because regardless of the fact that it's Danny Ward, name, name aside, Danny Ward has nothing, nothing in those few seconds to make Rashford think that he might not score that goal. And it's the goalkeepers have to have a certain psyche, I think. They have to they have to be able to if they can't do an awful lot physically, 
they've got to be able to do something to psych the opponent out. Right, you imagine this situation with Kasper Schmeichel in goal. We, we can do this as a direct comparison because we watched him as Leicester's number one for many years and we were grateful to do so. He would have been scampering out of his goal, probably a little bit hot-headed at times, but at least it gives Rashford a decision to make. And if he was sort of on his heels a little bit like Ward was and he couldn't do that, he would at least have closed a bit of the angle, decreased the distance between uh, between him and, and, and the ball, thus reducing the amount of time the striker had, and he would have made himself as big as possible. There was not a chance Danny Ward was ever going to save that, and nobody believed that. So, you know, neither and Rashford didn't believe it. I don't think Danny Ward believed it. Danny Ward did not look like he believed he was going to save that. Sabitzer, now I'll start by saying I can... I can understand why the red card was not given because if you watch it in real time, it's not the most forceful or the most reckless tackle that you've seen. However, by the laws of the game and by the fact of the the positioning of all of his studs uh, on the side of his leg and by the fact that he is... In, in some kind of in some instances of the definition out of control by making a tackle like that then yes it's a red card you've seen you've seen hundreds of tackles in the Premier League over the last few years get given a red card that are less severe than that and and I'm what what bothered me the most was the fact that the referee was not able to go and review it or was not encouraged to do so, or didn't say, I want to have a look at it. This would be my thing, right? I used to referee at local level. Um, kids football, mostly. Um, I, you, you don't see everything on the pitch. It's impossible to do so. But at the same time, you do have a feel for the game. You do you do catch most tackles, because the ball's there or thereabouts. So the referee's not looking elsewhere. He's not watching a sparrow up and about off the pitch or something. He's there. He's there. So he knows, even if he doesn't see the actual contact, he knows the build-up to the tackle, he knows the speed that everything was happening at. Other things were happening because um, Dewsbury Hall had gone to ground as well. So why not go and have a look at it yourself? Why not say, as the referee, put it up on the screen, I'm going to go and have a look? As a, as a VAR, the VAR should be and is a qualified professional top flight referee. So the VAR should be thinking, right, if I was in that situation, I'd want to have another look at this. Then the referee can look at the contact point. They can look at the studs and the, and the height of it. They can add that to what they saw in real time and they can make a more informed decision, which in in the laws of the game, I personally think should have been a red card. The score was 1-0. So has this decision changed the outcome of the game? Uh, fundamentally, it's difficult to say, unless you're 3-0 down with 10 minutes to go, and you can argue, oh, yeah, we would have drew 3-3. Three, three. That's, that's, that's nonsense. So, yes, the, is the answer to that. It has. Um, I think, and I'm, I'm, we're recording this, obviously, many days later, Um I think it's possibly one of the worst decisions I can remember, quite frankly. I I, I really think so. A um, couple of reasons. Now, the first thing I'd say, Stuart Atwell, the referee, I can fully understand if he's not actually seeing it 
in real time. I, I agree with you. He would have known something's happened from the shout from Vass, from also um, just being at the top of his peripheral vision. But he's obviously looking then down at Jewsby Hall just below him. The fact that it's right just the other side, a few metres away, means he should be aware something's happened. So should he have then said, look, something's gone on there, check VAR, check that for me, you guys in, in VAR, right? That's me being kind. He should have seen it, but I can understand if he hasn't. Um, if you saw Ref Watch on Monday on uh, Sky Sports News with uh, what Dermot Gallagher, uh, he it's quite frankly terrible TV because he is dull as dishwater and surely after all these years of doing it, he should be a bit more kind of lively and going with his gut. And He did say, obviously, it's a red card. I thought Stephen Warnock got it absolutely bang on. He said that. He gave the benefit of the doubt to Atwell, but then goes, well, quite frankly, what are VAR doing? What are the officials upstairs doing? This is very obviously happened. The replay, does it look worse than in real time? I completely agree. And I agree, is it a forceful challenge? Well, it depends on what ometer you're looking at out of 10. I think if it's slightly more, let's say this is a 5 out of 10, I think if it's 6 or 7, then Volt Vass is not playing again for a year, basically, and his legs in, in, in two. That's essentially what it would be. Um, the argument, given that he's turned his body um, to try and flick the ball, I can completely see. I agree with that. But it still means that when he's gone in on Vass, he's sideways. Go to then Graham uh, Souness's point at half-time, saying... He's gone inside on on the player. That's as if you want to, if you want to do someone harm, then that's what you do. And it, and everyone goes, oh, it's rich coming from him. Well, exactly. He knows what to do because he's done that throughout his entire career. So he was right. Definite red card. Um, ultimately, the guy's gone side on, knee high, onto Volt Vass, who is very, very lucky. Now, another part of this is, well, no Leicester players appealed. I'm sorry. What happened to the Wolves player, the third Wolves player? He went and got booked for going up to the referee. Just because we haven't surrounded the referee and Volt Vass hasn't rolled around on the floor, is that a reason? I think so. I think if Volt Vass rolls around on the floor and the game is stopped because of that, VAR then are forced to look at it and then may make his decision. That basically now says, right, if, if this happens, you've got to roll around feigning injury so the game gets stopped because VAR might well not look at it unless that happens. That's a very, very obvious thing to say. Uh, another point, I don't think there's been one person apart from anyone wearing a red Man United shirt who's actually gone, I don't think it's a red card. It's absolutely dreadful to not caution the guy as well. No yellow card. People can argue about the Mendy tackles later. They were bad decisions by the referee. Um... But I'm not looking at the referee here. He should have done better. I'm looking at VAR. I have absolutely no idea how they've not sent this guy off. Does it look like a red card? Yes. Does it tick every single box needed to be a red card? Absolutely. Like, 100%. Does it look awful? It really is. It looks terrible. It's on his, on his knee. I had to try and explain it to a guy at work. And, like, I did the movement to his knees. He's like, how is this guy not being... I said, I know. It's not in a melee. It's it's on its own. There's no players immediately around him. It's, again, 
another reason why, and if you haven't heard last week, go and listen to the rant that I had. It's all about VAR not being fit for purpose. What the hell is going on at Stockley Park? I mean, to not to, to, to get VAR decisions wrong is in offside decisions is one thing. To not miss out a player and all this sort of thing. And Howard Webb's got rid of Lee Mason and he's taking control. This is a different kind of error. This is a fundamental error by the referee on the pitch, by the two assistants who's not seen it, by the fourth official who's not seen it or hasn't referred it on, uh, by the, if, there are, if they can, by the VAR people watching in Stockley Park. I would love to have known what they were thinking because if they, A, haven't seen it, then, well, how many replays did we see on Sky? So many. So many replays. So they've obviously seen it. What were they thinking? Because essentially, as far as I'm aware, and I've seen a lot of coverage of this, I can only see people on Twitter who have MUFC in their Twitter handle as the only people, and a lot of them were saying it's it's an obvious red card, but a few obviously saying, oh yeah, it's not, and this and the other. I've not seen one person in world football who has seen it and gone, that's not a red card. It's a stone waller. And again, VAR is not fit for purpose. If they're missing this, one of the most obvious red cards I've ever seen, it, it's it's dreadful. It really is dreadful. And again, full credit to the Leicester players for not rolling around. Full credit to Volt Vass just for not for having his leg to being able to walk. Um yeah, it's it's just a complete shocker. And you look at the 3-0, you can easily turn around and go, oh yeah, it's sour grapes. Well, quite frankly, yes, it is. But there you go, that's football. And you just wonder what else will go wrong. Now, obviously, we've seen this with Leicester. I don't think there's been a decision similar to this. They, they've, they tried to find a few on Sky. They tried to find a few that were given... And there was one in particular, which was uh, Bruno Gomeris's tackle, uh, which I think was the live game on Sky. I think it was an evening game. I could be wrong there. Where it all happened quite quickly. And it was against Southampton, because I remember doing the commentary. And in real time, you couldn't quite see it. He came towards the player, um, whether it was Ward-Prowse or Stuart Armstrong. And when he came in, his foot was very slightly above the ground. But then it made contact fully on top of the boots slash ankle of whoever it was. Um, um, Do you say possibly something like that? But anyway, um, and then the referee goes to the touchline to have a look and he gives the red card. And then it was only on the replay when you went, oh, yes, that is, a, you know, you can see the de- the decision. Now, how the referee then hasn't been told even to go and have a look, he would only need one replay to go, Oh right, yeah. I was looking at Dewsbury Hall. That's a red card for not to not be referred to even have a look. This is this is the fundamental of it. It's not been checked. It's the referee's not been told to go to the touchline on the most obvious red card that's I can remember for a long, 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 long time. That, and I'm not going to go down there. Oh, they're all sitting there wearing Man U shirts, or it's a big team and this and the other. Oh, if it's the other way round. Stonewall Stonewall record. But that's what I don't get, Rob. That's what I don't get. How has he not been referred to have a look at it? 
how have they not decided you don't need to have a look it's an absolute stonewall raid card you've just missed it in real time that's what i want to know because i can't comprehend how they've come to that decision it's well again it's a farce it's it's not fit for purpose and if they look at if they can't get that right let alone the offside then what what are they going to get right and yeah it's it's just so poor and amateurish it's, it's ridiculous really but because man you go and win 3-0 it's going to quickly get looked over because, oh, it didn't really matter. But, of course, if people were watching the game, they would do. They'll know that it did. I think you've just found the podcast title there, haven't you? VAR Farce. Yeah, that's a good one. I like that. Uh, I'm quite pleased with that, if you can tell. VAR is supposed to remove, as as far as possible, remove the the element of human error from refereeing particularly because you look at the Premier League now, the players are fitter and faster and technically more able than they ever have been. Um, Even since the time that we've started watching football, Pete, for the last, what, 25, 30 years, whatever, the game has sped up an awful lot and it's still managed by one person in the middle of the pitch, uh, a couple of assistants and much more recently the fourth officials who I believe can, if they are closest to, or they've seen something very clearly that another official hasn't, they can and and should communicate with the referee because they are all qualified uh, to officiate the game as well. But it's very clear that you can't see everything all the time. It, that that's It's physically impossible. And yes, if the referee has missed it, the, the VAR has access to... All the cameras, every angle that they could possibly wish for. Look at how good technology is in broadcasting these days. You can see everything from every angle, slowed down, zoomed in, whatever you like. Now, I would I would be really interested to see and have a breakdown published of the of, of the decision making process that led to no red card for Sabitzer, and I think that is. That is that transparency is really what people are wanting from VAR because you're never going to hundred percent eradicate errors. They are going to happen. You know, somebody can be snoozing the weekend before at Stockley Park and and not see the player at the very top of the picture, especially if they've zoomed in to do their offside lines. I can, to a point, as 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 very rare occurrences, I I can accept that it's it's going to happen, but. There is no excuse for this because, as you said, the the broadcasters themselves showed countless replays. And are we sitting here thinking that the referee hasn't seen it, uh, therefore the VAR hasn't even bothered looking for it because they haven't had anything referred to them if they've not seen it on the screens either and we've just kind of moved on? Are we at a point where the referee said, oh, I think something's happened there. Can you have a look for me? And they've had a look and gone, yeah, no, it wasn't really anything. He didn't hit him that hard. We can crack on. You know what what has happened that's that's the frustrating thing here because if the PGMOL or whatever they're called come out afterwards and say right this was the decision making process behind it then you can start to understand it a little bit more I don't know whether I don't think Howard Webb will go for that level of transparency I don't know whether that level of transparency is offered to the clubs I know Howard Webb has personally apologized um, to various clubs for the previous weekend's uh, errors. And as you said, Lee Mason has found his uh, career very abruptly ended because of his mistakes. But 
we'd just like to know what's going on. There's no reason why they shouldn't as well. I know to kind of it, it's good to look at other sports but I, I don't like the fact oh it works there why can't it work here mm, yeah it's it's quite a, a simplistic point of view it's too complicated for that but also why can't we maybe not in real time but after we don't know why that wasn't given so but why not that's i agree with you one of the first things you said, why can't we find out what the decision was uh, it took an awful long time for the explanation of well, basically, we were looking at the wrong hand ball in the semi-final against Aston Villa a few years ago. Sorry, we're looking at the wrong hand ball. We're just idiots. Oh, okay, you know, you weren't probably watching the game, so you didn't witness it. The whole point of if VAR officials are in the stadium, they get a better grasp on what's going on. They'll be able to hear the appeals for handball and realise that there's actually two instances rather than watching on TV from a distance. You know, the cheapness of doing it for the richest league in the world. But there we go. There's a different uh, argument as well. Sorry, carry on, Rob. It would make it less frustrating because you're not asking why then. You're not asking, oh, what if this, what if that. You're saying, okay, thank you for holding your hands up. Um, it'd be like if um, if one of us made a mistake at work. Any regular person listening to this who's not a referee or a VAR official... If you make a mistake at work and somebody says, oi, what happened there? You go, I'm really sorry, I messed that up or I I said this when I shouldn't have or I sent that to the wrong person or, you know, whatever. I accidentally damaged that. You know, you say what happened, you might, your boss or whoever else has got any kind of interest in what's going on, i.e. in this case, football supporters, you might get a little bit of a backlash from it. But surely not anywhere near as much negativity as as the as what's been produced on the last ten minutes of this podcast. Because you go right, okay, they've come out, they've said that because Dewsbury Hall had gone down, the ref didn't see it, uh, and the VARs were I don't know whether they, were they checking the Dewsbury Hall thing, were they doing something else? Who knows? And and you go right, they missed it. Uh, it it's happened. We can try and move on. But if we look at it in terms of the context of the game. And, and more importantly, how Manchester United regained control of the game after the first half an hour, then then there is a very strong argument for the fact that if they had only had 10 players on the pitch, they wouldn't have been able to regain the control because they, they moved the ball wide very well, Manchester United, but by and large, th- their success came from re- regaining control of the middle third. That was where Leicester had the edge in the first 30 minutes um, and playing through those thirds fairly swiftly. Manchester United just absolutely carved through the centre of the field for um, numerous opportunities in in the in the last hour of the game, really. So would they have been able to do that with, without one of their central midfielders on the pitch? Absolutely not. Of course not. That, that I mean, that's that's fairly clear. Would they have still won the game or not? You can never, you never know that. That's a what if that you can never rerun that. That's uh, that that's gone. That moment has gone. But this decision did have a uh, could potentially have had a, a huge impact on the game, and it is a very very frustrating situation. I can't say it's a poor decision because I don't know where the decision came from. I don't know whether they saw anybody saw it to make a decision in the first place, and this is where your argument for transparency comes from, isn't it? It does. And because the game was televised live, uh, it could easily be shown at half-time. This is the reason given by... Because it needs, there needs to be a reason. 
There has to be a reason. Uh, and if the reason is we didn't see it because we forgot or we were in the loo or whatever, then or we were playing Minesweeper, then that's the reason. Uh, is it a quick enough system to put on the scoreboards, checking for penalties at handball, no handball or insufficient, um, you know, too close to the action? Then there could be basically one of ten reasons why it's not given as handball and then that could flash up on the screen very quickly but that would take some competence and some uh and for it being pretty quick which of course var doesn't have either of those um that that's one thing really i don't understand why they can't show the current lines etc on again on the scoreboards it, why why that doesn't exist no idea um you could imagine now basically the options you know when you're when you're working in in the industry that we we work in as well where basically you have you'll have a soundboard where you could press a button on the laptop or on a um or on an iPad and it'll play a sting it'll play a, a little short piece of music that's been assigned to that key well why not have that so for handballs there's 25 different explanations of why it's been given or, or sorry why it's not been given and it's not been given because of that right where is it oh it's Q Q and it comes up on the scoreboard yeah, within seconds. So why wasn't this given? At the time, it's not quite as obvious as that because obviously people in the stadium might not have seen it, so it's not that sort of decision. But at half-time, right, there's these really contentious decisions. We need to know why. And it's already been logged. It's already been told. So whoever's in VARHQ, whoever's there in Stockley Park can actually say to Sky, right, it's not been given because of X, Y, and Z. That's, that's the reason. But no. No, no, nothing and when nothing comes forth and they obviously hope that we just forget about it that means that they've obviously missed it or they've not bothered which or they didn't want to if you want to go down that alleyway it's um and i, I don't understand um the whole because of the industry i work in as well the betting industry but for the vast majority of my work and that um i am definitely definitely not so don't don't get me wrong. I've not gone down. I've not turned into Matt Letizier or anything like that. I've not gone down conspiracy alley, and I believe anything. Like that. No, but from a betting point of view, I when I look at VAR, I would not be happy if this product was shown to me from a gambling point of view. In the means of, do you think it's secure? My first point would be not at all. Um. So essentially, can the game be fixed or can decisions be made uh, that would then um, play to a certain betting point of view? All of a sudden, a lot of money gets put on a certain thing or whatever. I would not be secure because I don't know, A, who's in there. B, the decisions coming out of there are really poor at the moment. And also, there's been given no excuses for these errors you know, we forgot to put the line across. Okay, what about this one? No decision. What about this? No no reason why it's been given. I'd look at this and go, if this was a brand new product from a different country and then this was the process, oh, there's a hidden away room, it'd be ridiculous. You'd be like, oh, why aren't the officials at the ground, in the stand, in, the, in, a, in a certain area in the stadium, either in the gantry or, you know, up in the main stand outside? Why is it locked away in some mysterious... 
you wouldn't be happy at all with it. But because it's the Premier League and because it's you, you kind of go ahead with it. Now, I'm not suggesting anything like that's happening, but the optics from a fan are dreadful. We don't get the replays in the stadium. If you're in the stadium, you've got absolutely zero clue what's going on. No idea. And then when they show what actually happens on screens, to do mainly with the um, the offsides, it looks so shabby. It's like it's been done on a Spectrum, ZX Spectrum. The offside, the Rashford offside, in real time, it looked offside. When they draw the lines across, oh, it looks like Volt Vass is pretty close. And then when they draw the lines, you're like, wait a second, that's very, very close to Volt Vass's arm. But then again, we're looking at the shoulder or we're looking at the sleeve. And this thick line comes across and, oh, it's halfway across his boot. But then again, last week, we had Harvey Barnes's boot. It turns out he wears, according to VAR, size 25 feet. It's so poor. It's ridiculous. And the fact that we've got ultra HD in most houses now who are watching Sky or at least HD on, on big screens, it shows it up to be poor. And again, this comes to the crux of it. It's not fit for purpose. Very disappointing, the offside decision. It We can't argue with it. But then again, you look at it and go, that looks ropey as anything. And it really does. It really does look poor. Maybe not as much as last week. You say week's. we can't argue with it. We can, because we're, we're doing so. And I'm and I'm going to absolutely join you on that. There is absolutely no difference between that and the Harvey Barnes one last week. The only difference being the Harvey Barnes one didn't matter because we were already three to the good. In this one, it matters hugely because it's it's a game that is much tighter because if that doesn't go in then Leicester don't capitulate five minutes later and concede the second one and have an unassailable target for the last half an hour of the game they still maintain a one like within one goal of Manchester United and and it's similar to the Sabitzer one you can't predict exactly what would what the outcome would be but if Manchester United are only one nil up instead of two nil up it's obvious to everybody that it makes the game a lot a lot more chaseable for Leicester it's but my I have a little bit of an issue with Castagna and Ward because Castagna puts his hand up and then starts running with his hand up. Now I'm no expert, but did anybody ever see Usain Bolt win world, what 100 meter world finals with his hands in the air? No, well, so he kind of did uh, actually, didn't he? <laughs> well, he did. He did towards the end to celebrate. Yes, when he knew he'd already <laughs> won. But you look at Castagna, right? Uh, he's doing what you're taught not to do from the age of. Whenever offsides come into 11-a-side football, probably, I don't know, about 10-ish, 11-ish, something like that. Play to the whistle. You cannot get away with standing and having your hand up. He did it for maybe a split second and then ran with his hand up for a couple of paces. I'm not saying he's catching Rashford anyway, but he might at least have got close enough to lay a finger on his shirt, to breathe down his neck, to, to at least for Rashford to hear him. And again, like we go back to the first Rashford goal where Danny Ward should have given Rashford a bit of pressure, should have put him under some, given him some kind of decision to make. Castagna couldn't get close enough, right? And then Danny Ward made himself, in my opinion, as thin as possible. He did not, he did not cover any of the goal when Rashford's gone through for that second one. Is he looking for the flag? Yes, he is. You see him as soon as that ball hits the back of the net, he turns, looks for the flag. He's it almost looks to me, and I sh- I really don't want to believe this from a professional footballer, but it looks to me as if he's not really bothered to save it because he thinks that delayed flag thing's coming up. As soon as Rashford buries that, he's looking over for the flag, and he's thinking, "Well, yeah, I didn't bother trying to save that." But 
that that's how it looked to me. This is maybe be because we, as a podcast, we're very anti Danny Ward, but it, it looked to me like Castagna and Ward were certain that it was offside. They can't have been because the lines and the still images from VAR prove that it was very close. I'm not debating the fact that it was very close, but it was equally as close as the Harvey Barnes one. And all we want in here is some consistency. But Castagna's stopped for half a second. Danny Ward looks like he's not even tried to save it. And and those two things have also had a bit of an impact on it. Rashford, in the form of his life, more than likely scores it anyway, whether he's half a yard further back, whether Castagna gets close to him, whether Ward makes himself as big as possible. Rashford probably still scores the goal, but they're little additional things that irritated me about that. Yeah, I just back to the VAR, the one thing I'd say is, Barnes, it looked like, for the life of us, they were trying to find a reason why it was offside, and they forgot about the fact that the line went through the shoulder and head of a defender. Um, and again, you draw the line up from the line, you know, you draw a vertical. So you, I can understand why people might think, oh yeah, you can see it going through the back of his head along the far side of the pitch. That wasn't the case here. Um, but for the Rashford one, it seemed for the life that they tried to find a reason for it to be onside. And they've drawn this weird thick line from Voltvas, who's miles away from him, and gone, that's on the edge of his arm. And you're like, Really? Is it really from a camera angle where it's nowhere near in line, which I for one can't understand as well, the main stand at Old Trafford, why there's only one camera at that end of the field it is quite ridiculous for a start, but there you go. And um, yeah, it, it, everyone thought it was offside. And yeah, I completely agree against about Ward. I I generally think it was he wasn't trying a bit of kidology it wasn't quite Fabian Bartes at Old Trafford that time or was it yeah against West Ham wasn't it in the FA Cup where he thought he put his hand up for offside and uh, Di Canio scores years ago now that was um and yeah just just poor all round but again that decision the via oh Christ you know oh yeah that guy in the middle not for me Clive not at all um Anyway, we could go on and on, but we've been on the the wrong end of a few decisions. But yeah, it's uh, it's just desperately poor. On, and on a week where they're looking at independent regulator, for, uh, yeah, okay, bring it in. But again, I would bring it in and go. So who are these people at Stockley Park? What we are? What's going on there? I know it's nothing to do with that. I know it's to do with the finance and governing of football, etc. And it all seems rather good and needed because the Super League idea, the European Super League, is going away in no uncertain terms. That's bubbling under very, very nicely. And they're going to try again. Go all the riches in the Premier League. Look, Just look at the expenditure that we've had in the last year or so compared to the rest of Europe when you've got teams now like Leicester, but we've had unprecedented success. So you can maybe align that. But teams like Bournemouth or all of a sudden finding themselves in the top 20 richest clubs in Europe, it's amazing, really. In Europe, um, but anyway, that's a that's a different thing. So, disappointing results. Um, we move on, and we have got Arsenal this weekend. A few, just a few things to uh, tidy up, really, this week. Uh, well, today, actually, Rob, it's the um, it's the anniversary of when Claudio Ranieri was sacked on this day in two thousand and seventeen. Um, yeah, that seems seems a long time ago now, actually, doesn't it? So, six years ago, after the defeat, uh, was it after the defeat to Millwall, um, or we went to Sevilla? 
was it and then was it the, what did he go after Sevilla because they gave him that game but yeah I, I think it was after that because I went I was at Millwall and he should have gone then and it was the Sevilla game he went afterwards but um, yeah uh, and it, and it, very strange if you remember back to the time Rob it was everyone in world football thought it's a very harsh decision he shouldn't go apart from I think the majority of City fans at the time and it was proved to be a very accurate decision because we then stay up and obviously then what's happened since is all from that. You know, an absolute legendary hero of a guy. Or what? A, I mean, a genuine hero of a guy, but he needed to go, didn't he, at the time? He really did. I'd, I'd have sacked him a few weeks earlier at the, against Millwall because that was, that was awful. Yeah, short-term manager, but the short-term that he had at Leicester City was unfathomable. I, I almost want to say unbelievable, but I know... Friend of the podcast, Mark Perkins, it's his least favourite word because it can't be unbelievable because it happened, so it is believable. But it's un- the un- he did the unthinkable, really, didn't he, uh, in his short time at Leicester. And at the time, yes, it felt a little bit like I can understand why the rest of world football were like, oh my God, you can't sack that guy, he's won you the Premier League, blah, blah, blah. Yes, he did, but we were in a very real danger of not being in the Premier League the following season and suffering the... The uh, the difficulty of being relegated straight after winning the Premier League. So I don't think anybody now looks back at that second season uh, as their overriding memory of, of Claudio Ranieri. Everybody, as soon as you say Ranieri, you think, right, won the Premier League. Absolute gentleman. You know, he, he changed the club's fortunes and the club's stature in, in world football arguably forever in that short period of time that he was at Leicester. So, yeah, it's all... Anything you say about Ranieri, from my point of view, is positive. Uh, I suppose the other thing as well, kind of away from Leicester per se, but football-related, sad news. Today, uh, John Motson passed away. Um, essentially, the voice of football. For a, a, an awful lot of people listening to this, they'd have their own commentators, etc. But because he commentated for so long, um, it would be a very young listener to this podcast who would not either know would know the name John Motson but maybe never heard him commentate or um it would be a different generation and that's just how time goes isn't it uh but yeah obviously very sad but um just looking back at his career I mean everyone thinks the the sheepskin coat coat in the uh in the snow at Wickham that time and um that obviously made him famous with the goal against um Newcastle, Ronnie Radford, who died only a few months ago. Um, that was the commentary, really, that launched him into being a, a frontline commentator. And then you go through all of his highlights, which are too too many, really. But I look back on, you got the France side in what, 84. They, you know, Platini scoring, Tiganar, that goal where you just mentioned those two names and, and went mad. And um, through to the night, anyway, Ricky Villa. For Spurs in in the FA Cup, it's lots and lots. Gascoigne in Euro '96 against Scotland. Um, Gascoigne, oh yes, oh brilliant. Gascoigne, that sort of thing. It's uh, and then all the way through until uh, David Beckham with his goal against Argentina, the penalty, and uh, and he told everyone to hold their glasses and then to smash them, which is maybe maybe not quite the best thing to say, but there you go. Um, yeah, just just a. A very, very good commentator, um, encyclopedic brain, really, of the game. But along with the likes of Barry Davis, for us or for people 
I, I presume your age as well, Rob, but maybe for me it would be obviously him, Barry Davis, Brian Moore. Um, and I've always said, and I've said a, a few times on the pod, and uh, you know, like Brian Moore was always kind of my favourite. Um, so like, but yeah, Motti, there you go. He, he also, he did a little bit of work for uh, just before my time, actually, in, in the studio for Ladbrokes. Um, he uh, he actually did a bit of work. He used to be, you know, the, the pundit who used to do a few bits and bobs and that. And uh, yeah, he liked his racing, liked his uh, a few bets as well. So, uh, but yeah, that's uh, that's John Motson. Yeah, sad day for football and broadcasting, which we're both, um, you more so than me now, but both heavily involved in. Uh, I certainly grew up having John Motson as, as as the lead commentator on Match of the Day and, and calling all of those big England moments and and every every pretty much virtually every bit of football that I've watched in my in my sort of childhood is is called by by him. I think the first my my, my earliest memory or my first memory of of a commentator would be Barry Davis. Um, I, th- I thought he was excellent, and he he was a, an all rounder as well with his with his tennis coverage and and various other sort of Olympic sports that kind of thing. But yeah, Motson, iconic voice. I think that's that's the thing, isn't it? That's with with commentary, you can you can deliver the lines and you can you can call the action, but he w- he could have said anything in in any game, and you would instantly recognise his voice, and that I think is a measure. Of of the millions of of people that he that he reached through his work, really, because you know people people that are not in the broadcasting industry as such, or aren't avid avid watchers of of live TV on uh, of live sport on TV, probably don't fully appreciate how much of a difference a commentator makes to your overall viewing experience. But I would urge you, if you've if you've never really thought about it before, uh, watch a game of football on mute and see how how much less enjoyable it is than if you've got a commentator on. But also, listen to a game with a commentator that you don't particularly enjoy listening to. I'm not going to sit here and, and name drop. I can think of a couple that come to mind straight away, but that's just my opinion. Sam and And... <laughs> How on earth did you know? Uh, and 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 just think then. Hello, how, Sam. How <laughs> I'm sure he's listening. How much of a negative impact that can have on your on your viewing? You know, the vast majority of commentators add a little bit to your game. They they keep things ticking along. They give you little tidbits of information that you perhaps didn't know. They add to the atmosphere a little bit for you, particularly if you're watching somewhere. Uh, like at home, for example, you know, if you're down the pub or you're watching it in the stadium, that's obviously a different thing. Um, if you're watching in the pub and they've decided to have music on instead of the football commentary, a mm, little bit irritating, but you've still got the atmosphere of other people watching it, watching it together. But if you're sat at home watching it, just you or a couple of mates um, or your family, the, the commentator can make a huge difference. Motson was one of those rare ones where for the vast majority of people, he would add a little bit more to a football match than just what was happening on the pitch. I think Barry Davis was one of those. Um, if you bring things a little bit more up to date, you, you, in my opinion, again, you're talking people like Peter Drury. Uh, I, I still think a combination 
um, that only really exists now on on overseas broadcasts or or on Amazon Prime when they've got all the games in one day. Uh, John Champion and Ali McCoist, I, I, I like that as a pairing still. Clive Tildesley is one of those voices that you instantly recognise and, and uh, I don't think he ever puts a foot wrong and he adds extra to, you, to your game. Motson was one of those and I've literally named what five or six commentators there and, and I would put that as as the the elite of British football broadcasting that's that's where he was oh yeah and you think of uh, I saw uh, Ian Stringer tweeted and he tweeted a picture of the the lip mic and going that's what you think of Motty when you see a lip mic and he's absolutely true I think the one thing with Motson that I I really liked was in his latter years when when he when he Stopped becoming the the BBC's frontline England commentator when he was, and rightfully so, moved to one side and and other people kind of taking over because it it got a little bit not too much is wrong because of what I'm about to say but it 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 was time it generally was time, and he had the match of the day gig but then he started to work for Five Live for a little bit and very latterly for Talksport. Um, which I don't really listen to, so I didn't really hear him there. But when he worked for Five Live, um, and this would have been a guy at the time in his late 60s, and he was, um, I mean, I, I, I don't want to know really what how he's died, etc., and all that sort of thing, but like, always came across this a slightly frailish kind of guy when he, when he got to that age. Anyway, he started working for, for radio. And obviously with radio you have to be a lot more descriptive. And of course, what we do when we do football commentary and what I was doing out in Qatar, etc., is the ultimate in descriptive um, work, being an audio describer. So literally going over the top in describing everything that's happening um, because that's the, the nature of what we do. Radio, then you, you don't have to, but you still have to build the picture more than TV. And then you've got TV. So he moves into radio and... On Five Live, I thought he was excellent. And it was very interesting to hear him. A guy I've seen and listened to on TV for years, for decades. And then to be slightly over the top when it came to the end of his kind of TV main frontline career. Um, and then he comes on Five Live and I'm thinking, oh my God, this this could be a bit of a nightmare really. And it was brilliant it was absolutely brilliant he was more descriptive because it was radio and it was John Motson and you could almost hear him really enjoy that kind of challenge that you know the the change in tone the change in style which is a, a big change from radio to tv or back the other way and that was really good I, I really enjoyed it it didn't last an awful long time um but when it did it, it was again uh, weather for all sorts of different reasons um Five Live's output's been always very good in that when it came to the commentary. And, of course, they did change from having um, a couple of commentators to just having the one. But um, So maybe it might have been slightly too much, who knows. But, uh, yeah, but that's uh, that's John Watson, just a little bit extra. But, uh, yeah, very, very sad. I've tried to find a picture, actually, of him. This is one thing you can do if you, when you're listening to this. If you can find a picture of him, something to do with Leicester. Leicester tweeted, him, uh, tweeted a picture out. Of him being given the silver fox to mark his like fiftieth anniversary of being in the game and all that sort of thing, um, I tried to find a picture of him at like Filbert Street or something. Very very quick Google search, but I couldn't really find one. So I tweeted out the picture of him in the snow. Quite a nice story about the guy who actually took that picture through the railings, and he was absolutely freezing when he took that picture. He went down to take it. You could see it on Twitter, and um, 
And then obviously that became very famous, the broadcast from him being stuck in the snow, etc. at Wickham. But then apparently Motti came over and gave him his flat cap and his jacket because the photographer, the, the, who I presume was a young lad at the time, was um, was freezing cold. But uh, yeah, if you can, if you find a picture of him at, at Filbert Street or or maybe at the King Power, maybe at Filbert Street, an old one, then uh, just post that on uh, on Twitter at FFS Pod. Just uh, find our post and just reply to it with a picture because I couldn't quite find one. Um, any more on, on on Motti for now? No, I think let's bring it back round to Leicester and and have a look at uh, this Saturday three o'clock kickoff against the uh, league leaders. Very interesting contest. Yes, it is. We've got um, we'll do the top ten in the uh, in the dream team in the fancy uh, at the end of the podcast. But we, yeah, we'll just touch on then the game coming up because well, Arsenal top of the league they got a real bonus, didn't they? With uh, Man City drawing at Forest, absolutely all over him, and then and wonderful goal, wonderful Forest goal, wasn't it? The Chris Wood uh, tapping at the back post, but a lovely move. But City completely dominating, and how they didn't win three four nil, no idea. But Arsenal top of the league by two points and a game in hand over City. And the thing with Arsenal over the, it's a bit like the Spurs game. You know you can get at them, and there's always kind of goals in our games. Um, they're playing so well. You have to feel, Rob, that if Leicester and I'm not, well, I am um, presuming your score here, or um, going to guess really, but you have to feel that Arsenal are going to score. Anyone's going to score against Leicester. I think that Leicester are going to have to go three or four here because I can see Arsenal scoring two at least. Um, their forward line is, dare I say, we are similar-ish in our last few games incisive dynamic balanced um settled the way that they've got the center forward and Ketia being slightly more of a nine rather than say an Ianacho just slightly backwards of that but still able to be that guy in the box the way that they've got Saka on one side and more likely Martinelli the other side or maybe Trossard um, very settled. Odegaard pulling the strings in the midfield. Aller, James Madison. By the way, I've got a side bet at work with um, a lad at work, one of the producers. At the start of the season, we had a um, we had a bet, pretty sizable bet between us, and it's goals and assists added together, and it's Madison versus Odegaard, <laughs> and they're bang on the same. By the way, they're exactly the same when you add them both together. So, um, and then you go back through the side. So they do kind of match up. And the thing with Arsenal, they're playing such slick football and the way Leicester's defence at times crumbled against United, you have to feel that Ward's going to have to have a good game. The defence are going to have to be very nice and sharp and they're going to have to watch themselves because it's a different lineup to what they've faced, certainly against Tottenham with the physicality of Kane and the tracking of... Son from the likes of Mendy worked fantastically with the back two looking after Kane they didn't get a sniff really and then you go to Old Trafford and you look at them and go right buzzing around all the all the time running down the slight channels exploiting that which they did overall for the goals and you look at Arsenal and you're thinking very similar um, they're going to have to really watch themselves this is a side who the likes of Suter will not suit, essentially. Um, it's going to be very, very difficult. I, I'm looking at Arsenal 
coming to the King Power and thinking we've got at least a couple of goals here. Leicester, on the other hand, can you take the game to Arsenal? Yes, you can. It's got all the hallmarks of an absolute cracker, a really, really good game. But I look at the Arsenal defence and go, we can get at that. Our forward three must be licking their lips. You've got James Madison. If he can get the better and get away from the shackles of Ajaka and uh, Jorginho, if he's playing, then that's going to be important. It's going to be interesting to see the lineup. I can see Leicester going exactly the same lineup if everyone's fully fit, um, rather than have a Yuri Tillibans in midfield. Just to have someone like Mendy sit on an Odegaard and say, no, you're not going to dictate the play. Because if he does, then we're in serious trouble. And I'd look at those forward four for Leicester, and I'd say, we might not need that incisive pass from a Yuri Tillemans. You'd love it. You'd absolutely love it every single day of the week to slide in those balls for the wingers or through for Ian Acho. But I'm looking at that midfield and thinking, I want Keenan Dewsbury Hall and I want Mendy to be all over the place. I want them to be closing down, hustle, harry, kick, anything to get Odegaard off the ball, stop him pulling the strings, helping out with the defence as well. And having James Madison, who will come back and, and do his thing, have him occupy the likes of Jorginho so they can't pass the ball back to him. A, a wonderful playmaker. Uh, I think a, a brilliant signing by Arsenal. I want When Mendy and Dewsbury Hall are doing that, I want Madison to be near him because the one thing Madison has and over Granite Xhaka is if he's sitting on those players, if he's the disruptor, Madison, if he's there saying, right, you can't pass the ball back because I'm marking him. As soon as Leicester pinch the ball, interception, or it's a tackle, clean tackle by Dewsbury Hall or Mendy, I then look at that and go, give the ball to Madison because he has, even though we know he's not got express pace, he can get away from a Jorginho. And he can get away from Granite Xhaka, who would probably try and bring him down and foul him. And that's where I think Leicester can hurt Arsenal. It's when we get the ball off them in a deep position or middle of the park. And as soon as we get the ball off them, I can see Leicester being instructed by by Rodgers to move the ball forward so quick. It might be quite loose at times because they do it really quickly. The two wingers out wide, stay out wide. Um, their fullbacks, as much as they like to go on, you can get at them. You can get at them. Um, and that's what I think Leicester will do. I think they'll try to move the ball forward so quickly to get it to Madison, and then we're off. Because Madison get away from their plays. I can see, for a start, a possibility of cards in that, that area of the field. Jorginho, Xhaka, on Madison, certainly. And if they get booking early, sit on them and get them sent off, essentially. By, by fouling but that's where I can see Leicester hurting Arsenal on the break quick counter-attacking football get away from their front men and then we've got three players in advanced positions um, maybe not the game for the likes of Christiansen to go bombing on probably holding back a bit and Castagna as well I can see them just just being a bit more restrained than they were against Spurs because at Spurs they had they, they could just bomb on the whole time it was absolutely fine we could have two wingers out wide. This time, stay back and I think stay forward for the wingers. And that will leave that midfield very open. And that's why I think they'll play the likes of Mendy. And I think Mendy would almost be 
pretty much sitting on Odegaard, him or, or Dewsbury Hall. That's how I can see the game being played. I think it's going to be very open. And I'm going to go, of course, I'm going to go for a City win, but it's going to be 3-2. It could even be 4-3. It's going to be first game on match of the day. No question about it. Leicester are going to concede a minimum of two goals. I was just looking at the league table there and uh, Leicester have actually conceded the second highest number of goals in the entire Premier League now. 41, uh, only behind Bournemouth's 44. So there is no chance that Leicester are keeping a clean sheet. However, we have scored 36 goals, which is more than double some of the teams around us. So you would also back Leicester to get on the score sheet as well. Um, I'm, I don't quite share your optimism about a victory. I think it does hinge entirely on uh, Madison's availability because there's, there are question marks over whether the knee is going to hold up um, you know, whether he's going to be able to play or start or come on. We're not totally convinced at the moment. I don't think uh, in in a Leicester performance that wasn't great for the last 60 minutes against Manchester United, I really don't think he was very good at all. He wasn't the only one. I'm not singling him out. But this game, for for Leicester, this game hinges on him, as as much of our season does, to be honest. We're a million times a better team when he's in in the team. Um, Everybody else can do their job really well. Uh, but you still need that moment of magic, the, the the player that's going to occupy more than one Arsenal player, the one that's going to make those incisive and decisive passes. So if he's fit and he starts and, and he's at it and he's not thinking, oh, man, he's a bit creaky, then, then we've got a chance of getting a result. If he doesn't start uh, and, it, and isn't available, I don't see... Uh, I don't really see a way for Leicester to win the game. So because I've decided it's going to be the first game on match of the day and we're going to lose uh, and we're going to concede plenty of goals, uh, I'm going for 3-3. Oh, a Filbert Street classic. A 3-3 thriller. Well, I mean essentially if he doesn't play, if Madison doesn't play, I agree with you, but that that would be naturally just the Yuri Tillemans then would just come in for him. And it would be it would be the same. It would be exactly the same. Um, you'd have those three being the midfield three, with akin to someone like maybe Dewsbury Hall being given a little bit more license, maybe to get forward. Um, so I'd imagine if yeah, if Madison doesn't start, I don't think there would be a massive change in the lineup at all. I think it would be a very simple, simple decision. Bring in Tielemans, have those three a bit more closer to each other, but. Essentially, the the same rules apply. It wouldn't be as good because obviously we want Madison to be there, but um, cause, you know, he's essentially the best player in the side at the moment, isn't he? Or in, in the club. But uh, yeah, well, looking forward to that. And uh, just the final thing in the podcast, we're just going to run through the top ten of the FPL. <laughs> Right, so this is at the end of a game week as well. So these are all up to date. Um, first of all, Rob, actually, let's just let's just touch on the fact that I'm still ahead of you by two places and four points, 56th and 58th place. I'm coming for you. <laughs> anyway, here's the top 10. In 10th place, up into 10th place, it's Rob Baker with FC Bakerlona, 1,504. Up into 9th, Paul Towers, FC Bobby Dazzlers, 1,505. Down into 8th place, Liam Squires with Glasgow at Celsi, 
with 1,508. Up into 7th, Ash Taylor, TaylorMade, 1,513. Non-mover at 6, Ryan Gallagher, Amati Party, 1,514. Top 5, Joe Healy, Body Annuals, 1,520. Down into 4th place, Emmanuel Narok with TBGFC, 1,521 points. Up into the top 3, Adam Wise, Back of the Neto, 1,529 points. Down into 2nd place, Amangolati with Team Dalek. 1,534 points and a new leader, which Jack R. Emerson Blues with 1,543 points. So the top two have flip-flopped in the For Fox 8 Podcast League and not a lot between the others as well. I had a half-decent week, 51 points, uh, and you had one point less than me, which means that we're pretty much banged together but still slightly above you in the for fox 8 podcast fantasy football league um to get in contact with the podcast twitter at ffs pod or by email uh for fox 8 podcast at gmail.com rob anything else to discuss even if i did which i don't uh i can smell my dinner wafting up the stairs so uh i think we'll wrap it up there yes i'm off to the cinema so um i'm getting the uh the tap on the watch from, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, <laughs> right. That's it for now. Uh, it's either going to be three, three, or four, three. So fingers crossed. Up the city. See you next week. Mm-hmm.